Hey everyone, I'm back this week with another lesson from the book of Jeremiah. This week we're studying chapters 18 through 20. And if you've missed any of our study, uh, we hope we hope you haven't, but if you've missed it, go back on godsredeemed.org and go back and look at the previous lessons that me and Brian have been switching off on. Um, our goal is for this to be a good study guide for you and a help as you study along with us uh, and read along with us. This entire study of the book of Jeremiah has been really encouraging to me and not to be honest, not what I was expecting when we started, um, uh, started preparing for it. You know, when you look at prophets, there can be a lot of repetition, a lot of similar themes, common ideas that are strung throughout all the prophets. So, you know, things that we're reading about now in Jeremiah, we've read about in Hosea and Amos and Isaiah in, in various ways. Um, you know, there's different twists. All the writers have different different uh, things to add to it. But when you're just reading straight through, it can be kind of difficult uh, to to uh, stay engaged sometimes. But one of the things that's jumped out at me this this quarter, the study of Jeremiah, and one of the things that we're going to talk about a lot tonight, um, and that's been a real encouragement to me, is this glimpse into the personal thoughts and communication that Jeremiah has with the Lord. The times when he is not prophesying in public to the people, when he's not delivering messages of doom and gloom and talking about the coming judgment uh, and the evils that and, and sins that the people of Ju Judah were uh, involved in. But instead, when he turns to God and he pours his heart out and he goes to him in prayer, we see some very deeply emotional things expressed, but we also see some really impressive resilience, courage, faith, and perseverance in Jeremiah. And in the way that he handles some very intense and severe hardships uh, that he's going to go through. And we're going to look at some of that tonight uh, in, in the chapters we cover. Uh, so, as a, as a brief summary of what we're going to talk about tonight, there's a whole lot to cover. We're going to be in chapters 18, 19, and 20. In chapter 18, we're going to look at the idea of the potter and the clay, and then we're going to see a plot that was devised against Jeremiah. In chapter 19, we're going to look at a, a symbolic action, another kind of uh, uh, parable or another uh, action by Jeremiah to illustrate a very tough message that he has to deliver to Judah. And then in chapter 20, we're going to see that because of this message, because of this tough message that he has to deliver, Jeremiah is arrested, he's beaten, he's mocked, and he wishes he was never born. And so those are the things we're going to talk about in, in these three chapters tonight. So as we go into chapter 18, let's go ahead and start there. And we're going to see in the first 10 verses here that God gives Jeremiah an illustration. He sends Jeremiah to the local potter's house to give him uh, the, to this illustration uh, of this concept he wants him to understand and communicate to his people in, in Judah. And once Jeremiah arrives, he watches the potter making something on his potter's wheel. And the item the potter was making was ruined, and so the potter remade it into another vessel. And it says, as it pleased the potter to make. The potter can make anything he wants. He is in control of that lump of clay. And when the lump of clay failed to produce what the potter originally intended, he changed his purpose. He changed what he was doing with it, and he turned it into another vessel. And I'm assuming he turned it into something else of value and of worth um, instead of the ruined form it was in before. And 
this is a common illustration we see throughout the Bible. Uh, other prophets use it. In fact, Isaiah uses it multiple times uh, in, in his book, chapters 29, 45, and 64, to describe the relationship God has with his creation. And chapter 64, verse 8, is probably one of the more common uh, or memorable verses uh, that, that refer to this, where it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Paul uses this uh, illustration, this concept, when writing to the Romans in chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. And he emphasizes that it, God has the right to make whatever vessel he likes and for whatever purpose he, desi he decides. You know, we even have a song that we sing uh, at times that is called Clay in the Potter's Hand. And it expresses our place as clay and asking to be molded by our Father's hands. And it's really a beautiful image to picture our Heavenly Father sitting at a potter's wheel with us as the lump of clay, molding us, making us what He wants us to be. And we see that image several times in, uh, in throughout the Bible. And here we see that God is using it, again, to, to uh, deliver a message to his people. And so in verses 5 through 10, God explains this concept to Jeremiah, and he kind of explains, okay, this is why you're here, this is what you're seeing. So he says, I have the right to deal with Israel and any other kingdom or nation the same way that the potter deals with clay. God has that right, and he has the right to do that based on the attitude and the actions of the people. That's how he decides what vessel to make and whether it's ruined or not. If they become spoiled or ruined, he has the right to change the vessel uh, from what he was turning them into to something different. And in verses 5 through 8 specifically, he tells Jeremiah that if the lump of clay chooses to yield and turn away from its evil, then he will relent in the judgment and destruction that he had planned. So if the lump of clay chooses to turn back, he will relent from the judgment. Now, verses 9 through 10 says, on the other hand, if he has decided to build up and bless a nation, if he's, if he's planning good things for a nation and they turn their back on him and they choose evil, he's going to reconsider the good he had planned for them and make a different vessel with them. And God's shown this to be true throughout time, hasn't he? I mean, we can look uh, just throughout the Old Testament. What did he do when he looked down on his creation and saw that every intent and every thought in their heart was evil constantly in Genesis chapter 6? Well, he crumpled up that vessel, He was the, the thing he was working on, and he reformed it. He destroyed all creation with the flood, except for Noah and his family, and he started over, building a new vessel. What about Nineveh? His plan for them was to destroy them. He sent Jonah as a last-ditch uh, last effort to preach to them and have them repent and turn to him. They did repent. They turned back. They yielded. And he changed the vessel he was making, uh, sparing them the destruction of his original plan. And, you know, some may look at this idea and they may come away thinking that, well, God is a fickle judge. He's changing his mind. He's not sticking with what he, he decided. You know, we see words like relent, repent, think better of. Uh, that God just changes his mind with no intention. You know, that some people come away with that thought. But that isn't what we see here in, in, the, in these verses and in this concept. In fact, one of the things we learn from this is that God's judgment is fair. God's judgment is conditional and it provides his creation free will. Based on the clay's attitude, the clay's actions, the fruit that the clay bears, God will bless or condemn according to his plan and standard. And he has the right to make that decision. He has the right to make that call and change what he was doing. He doesn't decide what vessel he's going to make and make it, giving the people no option. 
he shapes the vessel, he, uh, whether it's a blessing or a punishment, and based on the quality of the clay itself and its willingness and ability to be molded, he, he, he crafts this vessel. So now here in the next couple verses, on verses 11 and 12, we see he now applies the same concept to Israel. He instructs Jeremiah to speak to the people and tell them he has a lump of clay on his wheel. He's fashioning it into a great destruction and a great calamity against them. But they have an opportunity here to convince him to change the shape of the vessel. He calls them to repent of their evil, uh, their evil ways and bear good fruit. And so he's giving them an opportunity. But he tells Jeremiah that their response is going to be negative. He, he knows what's going to happen. They're going to respond with stubbornness in their heart. They're, they're expressing no confidence in Jeremiah, in his words, no faith in the Lord. They're going to follow their own plan. And the false prophets that Jeremiah has mentioned before, we're going to see have won the hearts of the people. And we're going to see this response play a role in the next couple chapters uh, that, that we look at here. But God is the potter and Israel is the clay in this scenario. And they have an opportunity to change the, the vessel God is making at this time. Now, moving on into verses 13 through 17, where God continues to describe the rejection of the people um, to his call of repentance. And, and he, he keeps saying, they're, they're going to reject uh, my call. They've had an opportunity to be pure and undefiled, a perfect vessel, the virgin of Israel, the phrase is. But instead, what they've chosen to do is appalling. It's shocking to God. And in a few minutes, we're going to see what things they were doing. And we've looked at them before. But the evil that they are participating in is something that never even entered God's mind. It is appalling to him. The worship of idols, the human sacrifices, all of the evils they were participating in were the complete opposite of who God was and what he expected from his creation. And in the same way that their actions were appalling, the destruction God has planned for them will leave people who witnessed it astonished, shaking their head. They're not going to be able to believe what God is going to do to them. Now we come to verse 18 through 23 and we see a, 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 a switch in topic here and we have a plot against Jeremiah. And the leadership of Judah here prove God's point of how they're going to reject and negatively respond. Not only do they reject God's warnings, but they actively devise a plan against Jeremiah. And we've seen this already. They've done in chapter 11, 12, and 15, where they are actively planning against Jeremiah. They're going to, they, they describe what they're going to do. They're going to strike at him with their tongue and give no heed to any of his words. They're, verbal abuse, mockery, rejection. And they're intentionally ignoring the work Jeremiah has dedicated his entire life to. Delivering God's message and doing everything he can to help them. Kind of brings to mind uh, some of the same efforts made to prevent other men of God from developing a following or spreading God's word. Um, th I'm thinking of Leland's lesson this Sunday, talking about Daniel and talking about Jesus. You know, they, this is what he talked about. The leaders were willing to do whatever they could to prevent Daniel from, from worshiping his God and from gaining more favor and, and more power. And we see here the leaders are willing to do whatever they can to prevent Jeremiah from being effective in his work. And the constant rejection and the aggressive opposition is taking a toll on Jeremiah. And so in the rest of chapter 18, we get a glimpse into the mind of Jeremiah, what we were talking about at the beginning. He is overcome with frustration over this plot, uh, over their rejection, and, and he, he, he's frustrated and he's discouraged. And we see that 
in, in this section, rather than remain between God and his people as an intercessor on their behalf, like he has been, Jeremiah feels like removing himself out of the way. And instead of praying on their behalf, like he's done so much of already, he now prays that they receive the just punishment that they deserve. He says to God, look, I've done all you've asked. All I've done is try to help these people and convince them to repent and escape exile. I, I've tried over and over, but look how they're treating me. Remember when I stuck up for them, when I prayed for you to spare them? And we can think back to the times we've seen already where God tells Jeremiah he's not going to listen anymore to prayers on their behalf. God's told Jeremiah not to pray for them any longer. Chapter 7, 14, 15, and 16, multiple times we've seen this. And now in verse 21, Jeremiah is fed up and prays for God to fulfill all the words of judgment and destruction Jeremiah has been speaking. He wants it to be fulfilled. He says, give their children to famine, deliver them to the power of the sword, let their wives be childless and widowed, let their men be smitten to death, let their young men die in battle, and do not forgive their iniquity in verse 23, but deal with them in the time of your anger. This is pretty harsh language from Jeremiah, who is stuck up for these people, who loves these people. We've seen this, this conflict he's had. He loves them. But I don't believe he's purely reacting out of discouragement and out of frustration. I don't think he purely wants revenge here. That may be a part of it. That may be a human emotion that he's feeling. But I think there's a different level here that Jeremiah is, is praying this prayer and, and, and speaking to God. Deep down, I think Jeremiah wants to be proved a true prophet of God. He doesn't want the time and effort he's put into being a prophet of God to be wasted, to, to not come to fruition. He, he doesn't want to be lumped into the group of all the other false prophets, those preaching peace, peace that we've seen, or those just telling the people what they want to hear. He, he has a negative message that he's sharing, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't want it to fall on deaf ears. He wants God's will to come, come to pass. And I believe Jeremiah wants God's will God to fulfill his judgment on the people because it will confirm that the suffering and the rejection and the plots against him weren't in vain, uh, that he has truly been speaking the truth and, and it will affirm his own faith in, in God and the work that he is doing. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I started thinking about this and Jeremiah is not the only servant of God to ask him to complete his righteous judgment and punish those who oppose him. Uh, you know, David did this in the Psalms a lot. He prayed for judgment for his enemies, and he wanted deliverance from his enemies, but he wanted them to pay for what they had done and to receive just judgment. Paul does this several times in his apostles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and Galatians uh, chapters 1 and chapters 5, and even in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he does this multiple times where he calls on God to curse those who were found contrary to God's will or who had negatively impacted his work in some way. And even Jesus you know, I, I think about Matthew chapter 23, where he declared judgment on the hypocritical Pharisees. He was uh, giving the eight woes. Uh, he's declaring these eight woes against the Pharisees. And here's the thing. All of these examples have in common one idea. And I found, I found this quote that, that kind of encapsulates what, what they're all doing. They're not doing this for revenge. They're not doing this for, to be petty. They're not trying to get back at their enemies. But it says, when those who are righteous call for the overthrow of the wicked after exhausting all opportunities to reform and have been rejected again and again, they are calling for the triumph of God's justice and righteousness. They are calling for God to act on behalf of his truth and on behalf of his people who uphold his truth. And that is what Jeremiah is doing here. He's fed up 
he's at his wits end, he's done all he can do, and the people just keep rejecting, the people keep ignoring, the people keep mocking, and they are devising plots against him, and he is now calling God to, to, to act, uh, to act on behalf of his truth, and to act on behalf of his people who uphold his truth, just like Jeremiah. So that is chapter 18. Moving on to chapter 19, we are going to see another symbolic action that illustrates a very tough message Jeremiah has to deliver. And we've seen a couple of these already from him, and again, we've noted other prophets ha have, have done this in similar fashion. But before we get to that, uh, I want to make a quick note on the, chronolo the chronology of these chapters. Um, you know, there's not a lot of um, clues in this book as far as when, when things happen, uh, timing or chronology of events. But there are some scholars that, that place this, this chapter, chapter 19 and 20, around the early month of King Jehoiakim's reign. And that would place it around 608 BC or so. Um, there are a few clues to this timing, um, but it's not definitive uh, by any means. And, and I'll, I'll mention why I bring it up in just a second. But we see in verse 14, Jeremiah is speaking in the temple. So we know the temple in the city of Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet. It still exists, which obviously places us before 586 BC. But what happens in chapter 20, we're, we're going to see, uh, I'll spoil it a little bit. He gets arrested, beaten, and mocked, and, and all of that. What happens in chapter 20 caused some, some to believe that the events that are described here occurred after King Josiah's reign. And, and they do that because they don't believe Josiah would have allowed a prophet of God to be treated the way he is by the temple official. That isn't hard evidence, that, but it's not a bad assumption. And I'll leave that up to you to, to, to think about and consider. But I thought it was a note that was interesting because, you know, regardless of the timing, the message that Jeremiah delivers here is very unpopular. And it's not received well. Um, the symbolic action that Jeremiah is directed to perform here emphasizes the fate of Jerusalem. And what we see here is he's really bringing things home, uh, br bringing these thoughts of, of, of doom and calamity. Uh, he, he's putting a face on it. He's putting locations on it. And, and he's now bringing it home. And, and, and I think it's not sitting well with, with the leaders uh, of, of, the, uh, of Jerusalem. And so, in the first nine verses here of chapter 19, God directs Jeremiah to expand a little bit on the potter and the clay idea from, la from the last chapter. Jeremiah is directed to purchase a clay bottle or jar and takes leaders with him to the valley of Hinnom, also known as Topheth. Now, the name Topheth means hallowed place for sacrifice. And if we go to 2 Kings 23, verse 10, in a long list of all the reforms that Josiah made, it says that he also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, so we're talking about the same place, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire of Molech. Jeremiah is taking the leaders of Judah out, of, out to the valley where the people have been sacrificing their children to an idol. To, to an idol, I'm sorry. This is an epicenter of evil in Judah. This is where the worst of the worst is happening. And he brings the leaders out here and he's going to, to demonstrate something for them. And it's in this valley that Jeremiah tells about the calamity God is about to bring. And it says it's going to make everyone's ears tingle. It's going to get a reaction from the people. They're going to be angry. You know, if you ever felt your ears burning and, and get red, that's how they're going to feel. Their ears are going to be tingling. They're going to be angry about this. 
and and what he says, he he, he gives them the reasons first, uh, what what's going to happen, and he says this is why it's happening in verses four through five. He gives four reasons. He says because you've forsaken the Lord, because your worship has become estranged, because you've murdered the innocent, and we know that they've murdered prophets, they they've murdered children and many others, and because you've sacrificed your children to Baal. Now. Remember the appalling acts we talked about in, last, in, in the last chapter? The, uh, what appalled God? This was so heinous that it's mentioned here. God never commanded it. He never spoke of it. And it didn't even ever enter his mind. And that's quite a statement of how evil this place was, how evil these people were. It was so heinous and shocking to God that he had to stop and point out that last statement. That's how evil this was. Now, because of these four evils... This place will not be known as Topheth anymore, Jeremiah goes on to tell them. It's not going to be known as the hallowed place for sacrifice, but it will be known as the Valley of Slaughter. In the, in the valley where you killed and burned the innocent uh, and, and children, you will die by the sword in this place. Your carcasses are going to be eaten by animals and left to rot. Your choice of human sacrifice will lead to cannibalizing your own loved ones, forced to eat one another's flesh while under the siege. God, through Jeremiah here, doesn't pull any punches. He very graphically depicts what will happen to them because of the actions they chose to participate in. Then, in the next section, verses 10 through 15, we get kind of the meaning of this, and, and, and we get to the illustration part of this. Jeremiah illustrates what this doom will be like. He's instructed by God to take the jar and shatter it before the leaders. This was to represent how God would break the people in the city beyond repair. And to tie this back to kind of what we talked about in chapter 18 with the potter and clay, remember that while on the potter's wheel, the clay could be remade into anything the potter wanted, right? A ruined vessel could be reshaped into something else. But once it hardened, it turned into its final form. It could not be reshaped anymore. It could not be remade. This jar that Jeremiah purchased had hardened. It could no longer be reconstructed or made into another vessel. Its fate was sealed. And once it was shattered, it could not be repaired to what it once was. Now, looking back to Judah, their fate was sealed. The clay has hardened. God was going to destroy Jerusalem. He had decided that he can't change that vessel anymore. He was going to kill and scatter the Jews. He's going to shatter the nation, and it will not be reconstructed again in the same way. You know, we, we know the Jews are going to return at some point, right? But the nation will never be the same again. Think about those who returned to the first and second waves uh, and who were tasked with building, uh, rebuilding the temple. Those who remember the greatness before it was destroyed, they mourned. They were disappointed in the, in the fact that the new version just wasn't as magnificent. It wasn't the same. So the, the Jews aren't 100% completely destroyed. The story isn't completely over for them, but the current form they're in is going to be completely shattered. Then, once Jeremiah uh, finishes this display in the valley and, the, and this description, he returns to Jerusalem in the temple, and he repeats the message to all who are there. God will bring doom to this city and all its towns because they have not heeded his words. And in chapter 20, we see that this message wasn't very well received at all. And we're going to see the consequences that Jeremiah faces because of this message. But before that, I have a quick note I wanted, wanted to touch on here, something that, that I thought about while we were, uh, while, while I was preparing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul encouraged Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. 
When we look at Jeremiah here, he is definitely out of season. The leaders do not appreciate his message. They don't want to hear it, and they have been aggressive against stopping him. But that doesn't stop Jeremiah. And what we see is a great example of courage, and one that I, I found surprisingly re relevant to, to myself and encouraging to me as we've been going through this book. I, I, I related to it in, in, in some way. You know, you think about, what about today? Are we in season or out of season, do you think? I would say it's pretty easy to look around at, at those in this world and see the events that are happening and, and to say that we're out of season. We see Christians and even just basic, decent, moral people who are being canceled and censored and shamed and silenced and mocked and more. And I want to take a second and just encourage you here and, and encourage myself that hopefully each one of us can have the courage we see in Jeremiah here to preach what is required of God. No matter how unpopular it is with those of this world, it, it may be even more important now in this time of division and isolation and, and potential overreach by those in power that, that we see. It might be more important now than perhaps any other time that you or I have experienced in our lives. So let's look to Jeremiah as a source of encouragement as we consider our work for the Lord and our role in this world. And let's look at his courage and his perseverance to preach the word, even when it's out of season, when it's not popular. Now, let's, let's quickly move on to chapter 20. Um, we see Jeremiah is arrested, beaten, mocked, and he wishes he was never born. I've got a lot of notes on this chapter, but we're going to try and keep it brief. Um, but let me say up front, there, there's a lot for us to take away from this chapter. I would recommend you spend some time looking, looking into this and, and just meditate on it a little bit. So in the first six, chap uh, first six verses here, uh, a gentleman by the name of Pashur, he's a priest and a temple official, hears the message that Jeremiah spoke in, in chapter 19. Maybe he was there at Topheth, uh, we don't know, maybe he was just there at the temple. But he had Jeremiah arrested, he had him beaten and put in stocks, and he left him in a very public place overnight. Now, you can guess what's going to happen at that time, he, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be beaten more while he's in stocks, it's going to be a long night for Jeremiah. And you'll immediately notice the similarity here between Jeremiah and the treatment of the apostles and the first century Christians and, and the treatment that they received. You know, I, I thought about uh, Peter and John in Acts 4, 4 and 5 and even Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. And David Creech has been doing a great job covering some of that in, in his uh, Sunday morning class on Acts. But we see very similar attempts there by religious leaders to shut down those who taught truth. And so then we get to the next day. Jeremiah was released, and he, he was not silenced. He wasn't shut up. This did not have the effect that, that Pashur intended, I believe, intended. In verse 3 through 6, we, show, we, we see Jeremiah's response to being mistreated by Pashur. He says that Pashur would be known as terror on every side, a term that Jeremiah uses multiple times throughout this book. In fact, I think I counted five or six in Jeremiah and once actually in Lamentations, another book that Jeremiah wrote. And so he uses this term terror on every side. And he goes on to explain that the coming events, the doom and calamity that he spoke about in chapter 19, they would cause Pashur to witness his friends die by Babylon's sword. Uh, the city's wealth will be plundered and destroyed, and Pashur and his family are going to die while in exile. And he, he's basically describing, listen, Babylon's going to come. They're going to come attack, and Pashur and your friends, you're going to experience great terror, and you're going to watch your friends and family suffer because of what you have done. Despite beating Jeremiah and locking him up, 
his message is still going to be fulfilled and will be a living horror for them to endure. And, and you think about the timing. If this is in, in you know, 608 or so, we're only about 20 years or so from this happening. So this is going to happen soon. Now, the remaining verses in this chapter is where I, I think it gets really interesting. And again, there's a lot to chew on. We're going to see, again, Jeremiah's personal side. And so in verses 7 through 18, we see Jeremiah's in a very, very dark place um, because of all the things he, he is, you know, just in the last three chapters that we've looked at. He's had a plot against them. He's had the people reject his teachings. He's been mocked and he's been arrested, beaten and thrown in the stocks overnight. He, he's got a very, uh, a very emotional inner conflict going on right now. And one commentator I read actually calls these sections in Jeremiah where he gets very personal and very emotional. He calls them mood swing passages. And I thought that was kind of, kind of a, 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 a interesting way to put that. And I like that term because what we see is we see two very different sides of Jeremiah as we go throughout the book. Uh, and we see some pretty big mood swings, right? On one side, we see the Jeremiah, the prophet of God, the one who is preaching in public, right? He's the prophet of God. And, and when he is, and when we, when we see him preaching and delivering God's judgments, we see him as, as described in chapter one, verse 18, a fortified city, iron pillars, bronze walls. He's cur he's courageous, dutiful, faithful. He will do anything that God asks him to do. But on the other side, we see the Jeremiah, who he is when he is in private with the Lord. In these moments, he lets his guard down. He pours out his heart to God. And we see deep frustration. We see deep conflict, discouragement. We see a love for God, and we see a love for God's people. And we also see a growing desperation. And we see a concern as he considers the terror on every side that he's been talking about. Uh, he keeps having to repeat this message of doom and calamity, and he considers what that means to his friends, to his family, and how that will affect the people he loves. And he longs for the people to be spared. He doesn't want the people he loves to, to be destroyed and to go out to be carried away in exile. But at the same time, he desires righteousness, and he desires them to be vindicated and judged fairly. And I think that's an interesting contrast to see between his two sides. And when we examine him in this way, I think it's easy to see that Jeremiah is just a man, just like you and me. He was called by God, but he hesitated at first. He doubted his abilities. And then he threw himself full force into the work God, call, God called him to do. And now he's having to deal with the physical and mental consequences of that work. It reminds me of the end of the book of James. James chapter 5, verses 7 through the end of that chapter. And I encourage you to read it for yourself. I don't have time to, 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 to read all of it. But at the end of his epistle, he, he encourages the people and calls for patience and points to the prophets of God as examples. And in James chapter 5, verse 17, he points out Elijah as an example. And he says, he has a nature just like ours. Jeremiah is the same way. He has a nature just like ours. He's emotional. He was stressed. He had good days. He had bad days. He was torn between love of man and love of God. It sounds like a normal Tuesday for a lot of us, I think. Uh, right? I mean, we, we all face similar things like that. And, you know, even consider uh, the example of John the Baptist, the prophet who prepared the way for Jesus. 
He, he even grew impatient with Jesus and struggled with doubt and confidence in Jesus' works. And in Luke 7, he asked Jesus if he was really the expected one or if they should be looking for someone else because he just wasn't seeing it. These are some great examples to us, and, and Jeremiah is as well. Not because of their doubt, not because of their discouragement, but because, he, because even good men have bad days, and we can be encouraged by that. The thing here that separates men like Jeremiah apart from others is that when they have a bad day, they don't quit. Instead, they rebound in strength. They continue in service, and they persevere through the bad days. When they're in private, they pour themselves out, leaning fully on the Lord, and then they come away stronger than before to do the work they need to do. And this should be encouraging to us. Another point as you read these verses, consider this. If these events are assumed to be either at the very end of Josiah's reign or the beginning of Jehoiakim, anywhere in there, he's been doing this for 20 years. He's been preaching the same message in the same city to the same people for 20 years. Think about that. The Babylonian threat, the doom and calamity that he's been preaching, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen for another 20 years. He's starting to look like a false prophet to those who hear him every day. He's starting to look like a crazy old man they, who's going out and making all these crazy illustrations. He's breaking pottery and, and throwing a sash in, into a mountain and doing all these crazy things. In verse 10, he describes the whispering that is done when he approaches. Oh, there goes old terror on every side again. Even his trusted friends speak with sarcasm and mockery about him. And it's in moments like these when Jeremiah turns to the Lord in private and pours his heart out. He is struggling with confidence, struggling with faith, discouraged and defeated. He's been doing this for 20 years and not, not making the headway that he, he hoped. And I think, again, we can all relate to some portion of this. And that's why I wanted to spend just a few minutes going over these points and characteristics here. Because I know I personally haven't really considered how relevant and how applicable these prophets and their lives really are uh, until we started studying and focusing on these the last year or so. But reading through this and considering the times we're in today, there's a lot of encouragement and strength that we can take away from passages like this. Now, let's look at chapter 20, uh, the, the end of chapter 20 here, what does Jeremiah express in the private time with the Lord? What, what does he describe? Well, in verses 7 through 10, he describes how unpopular his ministry is and the mistreatment he's, he's receiving. He describes uh, the mistreatment he has to undergo. Everyone's mocking him. He's a laughingstock. He's conflicted. He wants to stop. His, he's distraught over the response when he preaches God's word, and he tries to stop. He tries to keep it in. He tries not to talk anymore, but he can't keep it in because of his great love for his brethren and the people of God. This inner struggle inside of him is, is almost causing him physical pain and, and definitely emotional pain. In verses 11 through 13, we see another prayer for vindication and deliverance, similar to what he, he said in chapter 18. But one thing stood out to me in this section and that's the way he switched gears in the middle of describing his despair and prayer uh, and, and praying for deliverance. He switches up and praises God in song. And that stood out to me because we can sing and, and we can praise God even with a broken heart. Even in the middle of a stressful day, even when our faith is weak, we can sing to God. And, you know, David, I, I think about David when, when, when I think about singing, obviously, and, and, and worship. And he does this a lot in his psalms, and especially Psalm 35. 
he's in he he he's in the middle of begging God to deliver him from enemies. And in verses nine and ten, in the middle of the psalm, he praises God for two verses. He praises God and gives thanksgiving to him. And then he immediately goes back to, to, to the despair. And so, so it's intermingled into his prayers, uh, this, this section of praise. Psalm 42, verse 8, David says that God gives songs to the righteous, even in the dark of night. So even in the darkest of times, even, even when, when you're asleep and even when you're, you're discouraged and in despair, God gives a song to you and you, you can pray and be grateful. And that can sometimes help lift you out of that. And then verses 14 through 18, we see that Jeremiah curses the day of his birth. And this might, you know, this is a pretty desperate uh, couple verses. Um, it even reads kind of, kind of foolish, uh, these exaggerated thoughts from Jeremiah cursing the day that he was born. And it should remind us of another example in the Bible of one cursing their birth, and that's Job. Uh, if you remember in chapters 3 and 10, he cursed the day of his birth. He, he cursed the fact that he was even born. And when you think about it, both of these men were enduring some pretty intense hardships, and they were hitting rock bottom when they expressed this thought. For Jeremiah, rather than continue to endure the frustration and endure the, the discouragement, the heartbreak, and the physical punishments, he decided it would have been better if he was never born. And he uses hyperbole to elevate and exaggerate this idea through the verses. If you notice, each verse is almost a little, a little more intense, a little more uh, uh, desperate. And in verse 14, I cursed the day when I was born. In verse 15, let the man who even told my dad I was born be cursed. So not just the day, but, but the, the man who, who told my dad. Uh, later on, I, sh I should have been aborted, killed in my mother's womb. Notice how these ideas get more ridiculous, more, more foolish, more desperate the longer he goes. But it's a reflection of how low Jeremiah really felt here. He really felt he wasn't doing good. He really felt he, he was not fulfilling his purpose and, and he would rather not have been born than to be suffering all of these things he was doing. Now, with Job, in chapter 42, Job ended up retracting and repenting from the foolish things he said during his trials. And we've seen Jeremiah already, already, he's been called a few times to repent and turn away from some of the things he said. Uh, I'm thinking about chapter 15, verse 19. He, he was directed by God to put away some of the thoughts and statements he made so that he could be in a right relationship with God again. We don't have a response from God recorded here. Uh, the end of chapter 20 here, uh, verse 18, the, 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 it ends. And we move on to something new in, in the next chapter. We don't have a response from God, but I, I would probably say it's safe to say he had to retract these statements as well, or at least uh, repent from thinking of those things and turn back to God uh, so that he could be in a good standing with him and he could continue to, to be a spokesperson for him. But that is how chapter 20 ends. Jeremiah descends to a pretty dark place mentally and emotionally. And remember, Jeremiah is alone here. He doesn't have a faithful wife to support him. He doesn't have children at home to love. Uh, we saw that in chapter 16, he was instructed. His own brothers and households have, have turned against him. We saw that in chapter 12. He has nowhere to go, no one to turn to, except for the Lord. And he goes, and he goes to God, and he doesn't hold back. He expresses the heights of joy, and he praises God. And then the next moment, he cries out in anguish and despair. He complains, he laments. But notice what he doesn't do. He does not rebel. He does not quit. He does not turn his back on God. He does not follow the ways of the people of Judah. 
Instead, he humbly submits to the call of the Lord, and he continues in his work. Next week, Brian's going to look at chapters 21 through 24, and we're going to see the book doesn't end here. Jeremiah keeps going. This isn't the end of the book. He keeps going back to God's promise in chapter 1, where God told him, don't be afraid. I will deliver you. And he continues and pushes on. So let's all remember Jeremiah. Let's remember his faithfulness. Let's remember his courage and his perseverance this week as we face our various trials. We're all undergoing all sorts of things. We we have members dealing with health problems. We have members dealing with with job issues, uh, financial issues. We have we have a lot of anxiety. All sorts of people are are dealing with things right now. Let's remember Jeremiah's example and his courage and his perseverance, not to quit, not to rebel, but to go to God and pour our heart out to him, whether we're rejoicing or whether we're defeated. That's all for this week. Brian will be back next week, like I said, to look at chapters 21 through 24. Look for that and and check out other videos of sermons, Bible classes, and even audio recordings of our past singings on uh, on our website at www.godsredeemed.org. Again, thanks for watching. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.